Hello all and welcome to episode 17 of the podcast. This is and indeed I am the Dream Filter. Today I'll again be discussing the Kosovo War of 1999, the brutal 78-day NATO bombardment of Yugoslavia from March 24th to June 10th. Last week we focused on the lead-up to the US-led Blitzkrieg, which was largely backed by an unrelenting propaganda campaign of slander against the Serbian people, courtesy of the Western government media complex. If you haven't yet listened in on last week's podcast, do it! Today we'll focus more on the backdrop before the bombs began to fall. Though the war between Yugoslavia and Western-backed insurgents had been ongoing since February 1998, it would not be until mid-year that the West would begin laying the groundwork for its entry into the war on the side of the KLA. On June 9th, Bill Clinton signed Executive Order 13088 that authorized significant sanctions against Serbia and Montenegro for what was termed as dot 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 an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States dot 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 also declaring it a quote national emergency for the USA on 23rd September, the UN Security Council adopted Resolution 1199, demanding a ceasefire between Yugoslavia and the KLA, singling out the former for extra criticism. Out of the 15 nations who voted on the resolution, 14 were in the affirmative, with only China abstaining. A day later, NATO warned that it was willing to bomb the Serbian forces who were fighting the KLA. This so-called activation order was made in the midst of an ongoing diplomatic push, led by the US ambassador to the Republic of Macedonia, to get the Yugoslav government to agree on a cessation of its sustained offensive against the KLA a withdrawal of its own forces and NATO occupation of Kosovo. On October 13th, NATO threatened again to bomb Yugoslavia under more activation orders. Two days later, an official ceasefire was signed. Serbian forces began to withdraw on October 25th and five days later marked the beginning of Operation Eagle Eye with several NATO countries monitoring the hotspot from the air, with particular focus on the movements of Serbian forces. Up to 1,500 ground observers, predominantly OSCE, Rackets, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Peace observers were also deployed to monitor the NATO-sponsored Kosovo verification mission. The ceasefire broke down in December. KLA freedom fighters murdered a Serbian mayor of a Kosovan town, and Yugoslavian forces responded by launching a renewed offensive. Violence escalated across Kosovo into the next year, leading up to January 15th when a key event took place. 
On January 15th, the Rasak massacre or Rasak operation, depending on who you ask, took place. It's a highly disputed event that was nonetheless seized upon by the West as evidence that military force would be justified against Yugoslavia. In short, about 40 to 45 Albanians were killed in a KLA stronghold. Their bodies were apparently seen by OSCE monitors and international media personnel within a day of the incident. Many of the victims were said to be found in a ditch. A key figure in the dissemination of the story was William Walker, a former CIA agent who was heading up the OSCE mission in Kosovo. He was taken to see the bodies under escort of the KLA on January 16th, accompanied by establishment media correspondents. Walker, a diplomat and not a forensic pathologist, immediately accepted the one-sided claims of the KLA that a massacre of civilians had taken place. This position was promptly and unquestioningly adopted by NATO, the UN and international corporate media, with Yugoslav police getting the blame. Reports of this incident, largely parroting the KLA Walker version, spread quickly across the globe. In hindsight, though the Rambouillet conference would not comment for another several weeks, this incident is largely seen as a key pretext for the ultimate act of NATO aggression against Yugoslavia. Bill Clinton would reference it in a March 18th news conference, less than a week before the Rambouillet conference would cease, and the bombardment of Yugoslavia would begin. References would also be made by the lovely, lovely Madeleine Albright on CBS's Face the Nation. That's Little Cock, both of the Rooster and Other Variety, Joska Fischer, the German foreign minister at the time, also referenced it in an interview with the Berliner Zeitung, though I'm not sure of the two dates. The problem was that the official Western account was totally denied by Yugoslavian authorities. And in the years that would follow the incident, not to mention the NATO-led destruction of Yugoslavia, more and more information would come forth, some of it even in mainstream European press sources, but virtually none from US sources. That brought the nature of the incident into question. There is ample evidence that a firefight between Yugoslav police and KLA militants had occurred in the area just prior to the alleged massacre. There is also evidence that most of the dead Albanians, unarmed civilians according to mainstream media, were KLA fighters who'd perished in the fight. Circumstantial evidence also suggested US and Allied forces had tampered with evidence, rearranging the position, and even clothing, of bodies. And that most of the OSCE observers, peace observers as they were so floristically titled, were CIA assets or associates whose purpose was to lay the groundwork for war. Investigations from both sides were carried out, but the truth has remained elusive. Despite this, it was seized upon by the West as a pretext for its predetermined war plans.
If you are interested in further researching this topic, I can recommend you a starting point. Firstly, you could try www.hirhome.com slash yugo slash ranta dot htm hashtag 9. It's a long article but worth the read. It is titled The Road to Jenin. The Rasak Massacre Hoax and Those Whose Honesty It Places in Doubt. Helena Ranta, NATO, the UN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, the Associated Press, and Human Rights Watch. It was published on a site called Historical and Investigative Research, but was apparently taken from a source called Emperor's Clothes, where it was originally published in 2003. Another resource is fair.org slash press minus release slash update minus on minus resac slash. The article is titled Update on Resac and is from July 18, 2001. The incident, its biased, agenda-driven and almost certainly dishonest coverage across the globe, was the hysterical backdrop to which the Rambouillet conference was held. We shall now refer back to this conference which was where we finished in the previous episode. It went from 6th February to March 23rd, 1999, with an interim break between February 23rd and March 15th. On March 24th, the day after the inconclusive closure of the conference, the NATO war on Yugoslavia commenced. Students, as outlined in the last ep, with abundant, credible documentation, the KLA was primarily a criminal, drug-running, murderous, sex-trafficking guerrilla organization with significant jihadist elements thrown in for good measure. This was the side that had the total backing of the supremely moral and virtuous Western powers. Does this mean that the predominantly Serbian-Yugoslavian side was angelic? No. Nuance, people. Is everything really four legs good, two legs bad? The last episode finished up with a poignant quote from Henry Kissinger from June 1999. I could imitate his gruesome voice for you, but will not. Here it is in my own voice. Dot dot dot. The Rambouillet text, which called on Serbia to admit NATO troops throughout Yugoslavia, was a provocation, an excuse to start bombing. Rambouillet is not a document that an angelic Serb could have accepted. It was a terrible diplomatic document that should never have been presented in that form. Dot, dot, dot. Students, did you do your homework? At the end of the last episode, I also encouraged you to check out iacenter.org slash warcrime slash 22 underscore rambo dot htm and read chapter 22, The Rambouillet Accord, Pretext for a War of Aggression by Richard Becker. Did the dog eat your homework? Early in the article, Becker pointed out that Clinton used the unwillingness of the Serbian side to sign the agreement as his justification to launch the Blitzkrieg. 
on March 23rd or 24th, depending on your time zone. Clinton made a televised address to the Reich from his Oval Office. Here is a key excerpt. Dot, dot, dot. And last month, with our allies and Russia, we proposed a peace agreement to end the fighting for good. The Kosovar leaders signed that agreement last week. Even though it does not give them all they want, even though their people were still being savaged, they saw that a just peace is better than a long and unwinnable war. The Serbian leaders, on the other hand, refused even to discuss key elements of the peace agreement. Dot, dot, dot. I know what you're thinking, people. You're wondering if there was someone hidden under the desk pleasuring the president as he addressed the Reich on live TV. And, if so, you're wondering how he was able to keep a straight face throughout. Come on. Don't be a prude. No, I didn't steal this from Police Academy, and I don't make such a reference for the sake of toilet humor. It's widely known that Clinton was pleasured in this manner while simultaneously speaking on the phone with members of Congress or senators on at least two occasions. I'm now going to read you a section from the aforementioned article by Richard Becker. Dot, dot, dot. The reality was very different. NATO presented the Rambouillet Accord to Yugoslavia as an ultimatum. It was a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, as Albright and other officials often emphasized in February 1999. There were, in fact, no real negotiations. The Accord provided Kosovo with a very broad form of autonomy. A province of Serbia, one of two republics, brackets, along with Montenegro, that make up present-day Yugoslavia, Kosovo would have its own parliament, president, prime minister, supreme court, and security forces under Rambouillet. The new Kosovo government would be able to negate laws of the federal and Serbian republic legislators and conduct its own foreign policy. The agreement was to be enforced by 28,000 NATO troops. The Yugoslav government indicated its willingness to accept the autonomy part of the agreement. It rejected the occupation of Yugoslavia by NATO as a violation of its sovereignty, but indicated its willingness to consider alternative international peacekeeping forces. The U.S. rejected any negotiation on this point. On February 21, 1999, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright declared in Rambouillet, We accept nothing less than a complete agreement, including a NATO-led force. On CNN the same day, Albright was asked, Does it have to be? Parenthesis, a NATO-led force, or as some have suggested, Perhaps a UN-led force or an OSCE force? Does it specifically have to be NATO-run? She replied, The United States' position is that it has to be a NATO-led force. That is the basis of our participation in it. Two days later, Albright repeated this position at a press conference. 
It was asked earlier when we were all together whether the force could be anything different than a NATO-led force. I can tell you point blank from the perspective of the United States, absolutely not. It must be a NATO-led force. Over the next month, this position was repeated many times by State Department officials. The U.S. refused to allow the Serbs to sign the political agreement until they first agreed to a NATO-led force to implement it. The Serbs have been acting as if there are two documents, but they can't pick and choose, Albright said. According to a French press agency report of March 13, 1999, there is no way to have the political document without the implementation force that has to be NATO-led. If they are not willing to engage on the military and police chapters, there is no agreement. Brackets. Fair Media Advisory, May 14, 1999. Dot, dot, dot. In addition to its publicized aspects, the Rambouillet Accords contained many provisions that are extraordinary in their intrusiveness and violation of Yugoslavia's sovereignty. Most of these provisions have never been mentioned in the mainstream media in the United States. A brief, brackets, and non-comprehensive survey of some of the Accords articles follows. Chapter 4A, Article 1. The economy of Kosovo shall function in accordance with free market principles. Kosovo, it should be noted, is rich in mineral resources like gold, silver, mercury, molybdenum, and other ores. Most of the mines were state-owned or joint ventures. Why it was necessary to stipulate the character of Kosovo's projected new economy has never been publicly explained. Chapter 5, Article 5. The chief of the implementation mission, brackets, CIM, shall be the final authority in theatre regarding interpretation of the civilian aspects of this agreement, and the parties agree to abide by his determinations as binding on all parties and persons. The CIM is to be appointed by the European Union countries. Chapter 7, Article 15. The K-4, parenthesis, NATO, commander is the final authority in theatre regarding interpretation of this chapter, and his determinations are binding on all parties and persons. This chapter refers to all military matters. Together, the CIM and the NATO commanders were to be given complete dictatorial powers, the right to overturn elections, shut down organizations and media, and overrule any decisions made by the Kosovo, Serbia, or federal governments. Appendix B Appendix B, the status of the multinational military implementation force, includes even more intrusive provisions for Yugoslavia as a whole. Section 6A NATO shall be immune from all legal process, whether civil, administrative, or criminal. Section 6b. NATO personnel under all circumstances and at all times shall be immune from the party's jurisdiction in respect of any civil, administrative, criminal or disciplinary offences that may be committed by them in the FRY, brackets, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Section 7. 
NATO personnel shall be immune from any form of arrest, investigation, or detention by the authorities in the FRY. Together, sections six and seven comprise the old colonial concept of extraterritoriality, under which the colonizers were immune from being tried by the courts of the occupied country. What followed next was even more intrusive, and indeed must be seen as the key section of the entire agreement. Section eight: NATO personnel shall enjoy, together with their vehicles, vessels, aircraft, and equipment, free and unrestricted passage and unimpeded access throughout the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, including associated airspace and territorial waters. This shall include, but not be limited to, the right of bivouac, manoeuvre, billet, and utilisation of any areas or facilities as required for support, training, and operations. This astounding provision for NATO to occupy not just Kosovo but all of Yugoslavia was never reported in the corporate media here during the period leading up to the war. Section eleven. NATO is granted the use of airports, roads, rails, and ports without payment of fees, duties, dues, tolls, or charges occasioned by mere use. Section fifteen: The parties (brackets Yugoslav government) shall, upon simple request, grant all telecommunications services, including broadcast services, needed for the operation as determined by NATO. This shall include the rights to utilize such means and services as required to assure full ability to communicate, and the right to use all of the electromagnetic spectrum for this purpose, free of cost. Section twenty-two, NATO may, in the conduct of the operation, have need to make improvements or modifications to certain infrastructure in the FRY. Such as roads, bridges, tunnels, buildings, and utility systems. The Rambouillet Accord required that Yugoslavia allow NATO unfettered access to any and all parts of the country's territory, with all costs to be borne by the host country. The accord blatantly violated Yugoslavia's sovereignty in so provocative a manner that it could not have been accidental. Clearly, U.S. policymakers never intended for Yugoslavia's leadership to sign this document. It was just another step in the preparation for war. The role of Rambouillet in this process was to put the onus on the Yugoslav side for the failure to achieve a peaceful resolution, in order to justify the massive bombing of the entire country. Dot. 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 <sighs> Listeners, do you not like it when I just read from an article like that? Well, if you had have done your homework like I asked, it wouldn't have been necessary. I'll now refer you to the testament of Malcolm Fraser, the now deceased PM of Australia from 1975 to 1983. In April 1999, Fraser, chairman of Care Australia from '87 to 2002, was appointed Australia's special envoy to Yugoslavia.
to secure the release of two Australian employees of CARE who'd been incarcerated by Yugoslavian authorities. This was achieved in September 1999, along with the eventual release of a third Yugoslavian employee of the aid group. In the interim, Fraser had to spend a lot of time in Yugoslavia, using his extensive contacts to gain leverage in what were ultimately successful negotiations with the Yugoslav government. Fraser also had a firm, retrospective opinion of the Rambouillet Conference. If you'd like the lowdown, check out an International Herald Tribune article titled Western Policy Toward Serbia Has Been Biased from December 22, 1999, six months after the end of the Blitzkrieg. You can find it at www.oocities.org slash hebdo99 slash dossier slash fraser dot htm. Here's a section. Dot dot dot. NATO's claim that it was only attacking military targets was never accurate. Even in the early days of the bombing campaign, I walked through Serbian factories that had been totally destroyed, although their production was for civilian purposes alone. NATO's actions were directed not just against the Serbian military, but also against the people of Serbia. Homes, hospitals, even refugee centers did not escape. The West's mistakes against Yugoslavia were not only military. Diplomacy was conducted without finesse. People who did not understand the Balkans put together a plan and summoned the Kosovo Liberation Army and the Yugoslav government to Rambouillet in France. There was no negotiation. This diplomatic initiative seemed designed to provide an excuse for war. At the end of the fighting, NATO made three significant concessions which were not on the agenda at Rambouillet. Those concessions can only be regarded as a weakening of NATO's position. At Rambouillet, NATO demanded that its forces occupy and govern Kosovo. At the end of the war, the responsibility was given to the United Nations. At Rambouillet, NATO required a referendum in three years to determine Kosovo's fate. At the end of the war, Kosovo was recognized as an integral part of Yugoslavia. At Rambouillet, the ultimatum required that NATO troops be allowed access to any part of Yugoslavia. At the end of the war, the occupying force was to be confined to Kosovo. The Rambouillet conditions could not have been accepted by any Serbian leader or by any president of Yugoslavia. With more skillful diplomacy, the war could have been avoided. Since it ended, the KLA, coupled with Albanian organized crime, seems set to dominate Kosovo. On August 11, a report by Human Rights Watch in New York indicated that. Since the arrival of NATO troops in mid-June, more than 164,000 Serbs had fled Kosovo, and peacekeepers had reported nearly 200 murders. 
Later, the International Crisis Group reported murders in Kosovo running at 30 a week, mostly of Serbs. At that rate, around 800 people will have been killed by Christmas. With all its power and authority, NATO is clearly unable to protect minorities in Kosovo. Should NATO's condemnation of Serbia now be turned upon itself? And if that is so, who is to punish NATO? Dot, dot, dot. The Rambouillet conference lasted six and a half weeks, with a three-week cessation wedged in. On March 18th, the NATO-backed Albanian side signed what would be known as the Rambouillet Accords. The Russian-backed Serbian side obviously declined. It was officially abandoned on March 23rd, and OSCE monitors promptly withdrew from the region, an obvious precursor to the air war. The National Assembly of the Republic of Serbia held a session on March 23 to discuss the fruitless conference. You can review this at web.archive.org slash web slash 20080214160503 slash www.serbia-info.com slash news slash 1999-03 slash 24 slash 10030.html the conclusions are long, but two key points were as follows. The Serbian side accepted greater autonomy for Kosovo, but not NATO occupation of Kosovo and greater Yugoslavia. Also, the KLA had been unwilling to meet directly with the Serbian side at all. The clearly engineered collapse of the Rambouillet conference takes us back to Bill Clinton and the live speech he made to his glorious Reich on March 23rd at about 8pm local time, possibly while being fellated by an unseen party under his desk. Do you think I jest? The speech came hot on the heels of the end of the conference and was done in order to announce the immediate commencement of the air campaign. This was the start of his address. Dot, dot, dot. My fellow Americans, today our armed forces joined our NATO allies in airstrikes against Serbian forces responsible for the brutality in Kosovo. We have acted with resolve for several reasons. Dot, dot, dot. Later on, after his previously cited mention of the Rambouillet conference, he said this. Dot, dot, dot. Hopefully, Mr. Milosevic will realize his present course is self-destructive and unsustainable. If he decides to accept the peace agreement and demilitarize Kosovo, NATO has agreed to help to implement it with a peacekeeping force. If NATO is invited to do so, our troops should take part in that mission to keep the peace. Dot, dot, dot. 
If you wish to see how effective NATO troops are as peacekeepers, I'd like to recommend an article from Robert Fisk. It is titled "Serbs Murdered by the Hundred Since Liberation." The last words placed within inverted commas. It's from the Independent newspaper, November twenty-fourth, nineteen ninety-nine, five months after the NATO bombardment ceased. I will now read you the first three paragraphs from the article. The post-war ethnic cleansing of Kosovo's Serbs appears to be nearing completion as armed Albanians continue to murder and kidnap the tiny minority of Serbs who remain in the province more than five months after NATO troops arrived. In the words of their UN mandate, to ensure public safety and order, of Pristina's forty thousand Serb population, only four hundred are left. Statistics from the Serb Church and a human rights group in Pristina suggest as many as three hundred and sixteen Serbs have been murdered and four hundred and fifty-five more kidnapped, many of them killed since NATO's arrival. If these figures bear any relation to reality, and most are accompanied by names and dates, then the number of Serbs killed in the five months since the war comes close to that of Albanians murdered by Serbs in the five months before NATO began its bombardment in March. Dot dot dot. Of the almost 350 Allied aircraft available at the start of the air war, two thirds were American. The ratio would be similar with regards to the thousand-plus aircraft available by its conclusion. During the 78-day air war, just under 40,000 sorties were flown. A state of national emergency was declared by Yugoslavia just prior to the commencement of the bombardment, and a full military mobilization enacted. An escalation of violence between Serbian forces and the KLA would be inevitable, as was a dramatic increase in the flight of refugees from Kosovo, as pointed out in the last episode. According to the CIA and UN, over half a million refugees fled the intensified assault by Serbian forces that resulted from the commencement of the bombing. To say nothing of those who fled the bombing itself. From the outset, air defenses, military commands, and control centers were targeted. Bridges, factories, farms, fuel refineries. Hospitals, industrial centers, oil refineries, power grids, schools, transportation facilities, and water systems were also obliterated. If you'd like extensive documentation, peruse the references under evidence at iacenter.org/warcrime/4_infra.htm. The article is titled "Chapter Four: Damage to Civilian Infrastructure in Yugoslavia" by Jill Singer. Students, that is your homework for this week. You're not going to do it, though, are you? 
On day one, NATO destroyed over 50 targets, mainly military. The number and nature of the targets would quickly expand across all of Yugoslavia. Serbian forces and civilian targets were increasingly singled out with each day. By the end of month one, NATO was averaging 350 sorties a day, over one-third of them to launch direct airstrikes. Of the 38,000 sorties by the end, roughly two-third were for this purpose. There was a smattering of mainstream media coverage somewhat critical of NATO war crimes against Yugoslavia. But most coverage was sycophantic and perfectly in step with NATO and the Pentagon. More on this next week. But first, I will read you a snippet from an article at fair.org slash extra slash the minus military minus industrial minus media minus complex slash seven slash question mark issue underscore area underscore id equals five six it's from the book war made easy how presidents and pundits keep spinning us to death by norman solomon here it is dot 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 in the spring of 1999 as usual Selected images and skewed facts on television made it easier for Americans to accept, or even applaud, the exploding bombs funded by their tax dollars and dropped in their names. The citizens of the NATO alliance cannot see the Serbs that their aircraft have killed, the Financial Times noted, brackets, March 31, 99. On American television, the warfare appears to be wondrous and fairly bloodless. Dot, dot, dot. I'm going to close by reading you the next paragraph from that article, which makes mention of Thomas Friedman, globalist vermin from the New York Times. Here's the section. When the New York Times's Friedman brackets, April 6, 99, reflected on the first dozen days of what he called NATO's surgical bombing, he engaged in easy punditry. Let's see what 12 weeks of less than surgical bombing does. He wrote, Don't like my use of the word vermin? This globalist vermin used a public platform to endorse the indiscriminate mass murder of innocent people. But I shouldn't use the word vermin. Boys and girls, that shall be all for today. Remember, question everything. Do your own research. Keep a healthy, open mind. And above all, never forget. You've been given an intellect, so use it. Goodbye.